0: Well, the uh, good thing is they put us in the room designed for intimate conversation, so that's good. Uh, So I think we should jump straight in. Yeah. Um, And a a question. I I do have some questions from the audience that have been submitted to me, and we will have time for some questions at the end. But a current theme, I think, through the questions, and one I'd like to ask you to start. Why, of all the
1: literary forms, uh, did you choose playwriting? Uh, I think it was... uh Quite circumstantial, you know, um, I was a reporter of a regional paper in, in the mid late '50s, and it was a time when thousands of young journalists were thinking they should write a play, um, the previous generation having had the thought that it ought to be writing the great English novel in in uh, Sometime in my adolescence the theatre became an object of quite disproportionate interest in England, particularly in England, I don't know why, and, um, well, when I first started going to what I would call proper theatre, it was a time when Look Back in Anger was a new play and Waiting for Godot was not particularly old and the birthday party um, which was, I think, not actually Harold Pinter's first play, but the first one one became aware of. You know, that, that, that was fairly recent. And there were... It, I think, actually, it was a glorious time for young writers because um, it, was, it was possible at that moment, if you were clever and good, um, to have a play performed perhaps without décor on a Sunday night, and every important critic would come and see it. I mean, now talking about uh, the mid-50s. And um, I should add to that. Sorry, my question's actually... Um, thanks for answering the question. I only need one, really, because everything connects, and there's no reason for me ever to stop talking until 4 o'clock now. It's really <laughs> embarrassing. Easy gig for me. uh, I ought to add one thing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I was only going to add something, which, um, of course, has now escaped my sort of senile amnesiac brain, but there there was another factor, which is this, that I was actually a very junior theatre reviewer going to a three-theatre town at a time when... um, This particular theatre had a very high reputation as perhaps the best regional theatre. And because I had a journalist's access, I got the smell of the place backstage, and I was really excited by that. But as a writer, I mean, do you
0: find it difficult to sometimes surrender the work? Because theatre is a collaborative effort. Uh, You don't know what they're going to do with it once they get their hands on it. Um, for someone who has such a, a love of language and such a control of the language, does it ever, do you ever find it daunting or do you find it uh, invigorating, handing over your work to a director
1: and a bunch of actors? Um, I think I was protected by my innocence. Uh, I entered the theatre as a neophyte with the, f- uh, the clear assumption which I derived from somewhere, that all these other people that you've now mentioned existed only to look after my text. That mm. was their—that <laughs> that was their purpose in life. <laughs> um, and um, although, that, although I'm speaking lightly, in a sense, it's not untrue. Uh, it's not completely untrue. Um, I think theatre is text-led, certainly the theatre I grew up into. I I know there are all kinds of other theatres, but I've never had the slightest desire to start, um, as it were, play through improvisation. Um, In fact, in many ways, I'm a very conservative kind of person. I'm quite a conservative writer in my own belief. And I have quite a conservative conservative attitude towards... um, theatre as an art form and as an institution. Um, To me, it's a bunch of people who very carefully learn a text, don't bump into each other, and speak with perfect articulation. (laughs) Mm.
0: Where in the the pecking order do do you place the writer as a writer? Uh, in the theatre, I'm assuming it's somewhere near the top, but uh, do you you see the writer as being paramount,
1: or...? Well, I think, um, really, just to try to do an absolutely um, neutral kind of answer, um, it's clear that it's a team sport, and so to speak in terms of status and primacy, is probably not something to be encouraged. I mean, there are theatres, you know, in places uh, which can remain unspoken, though actually, no, I don't think, I mean, Germany, let's talk about Germany for a while. (laughs) I mean, uh, that is, and it's a truism, it's much more of a director's theatre. And I think that one can have a really, really interesting time in a German theatre and you can also spend some of the worst evenings of your life in the (laughs) German theatre. Can I just mention, uh, just to kind of finish on a a more positive note, I I thought the the Berlin production of Rock and Roll, a play which the Melbourne Company brought to Sydney, Mm. was was wonderful, uh, that production, and it took place on a on a bare stage over which was suspended a completely abstract lump of rusty metal. Uh, If somebody had said to me, this is how we're going to do your play, I would have thought, yeah, okay, that's that's exactly what I would expect from um, (laughs) the German theatre. And (laughs) and I say, uh, I wish I hadn't got into this now, but... (laughs) I I am getting into it uh, on a note of, um, you know, illumination and and a degree of gratitude. Um, I I, I liked their production better than ours,
0: actually. Mm. Are you often surprised or uh, influenced by the actors and the directors in the rehearsal process? Do you arrive with a text pretty much finished or do you allow it to evolve, particularly in the first production, Uh, during the
1: rehearsal process? Um, I don't actually do drafts of plays. I do drafts of sentences. Um, In other words, the first page of a play is likely to exist in 20 or 30 different forms, each one barely distinguishable from the previous one. And I keep, as it were, going over everything as I move forward because I do write chronologically, page to page. And the result is that I end up with with a manuscript and I write with a pen, by the way, uh, in which uh, the variations are very many at at the front and they tail off and you get to a point, ideally, where there is only one conceivable version of the last page and you never change it. That's how it seems to work with me. And then, of course, um, the the notion that this text is finished and Adamantine uh, gets completely destroyed in a rehearsal um, with with a play which has not been done before, I I'm mean, I'm, I'm in a rehearsal all the time and uh, the plays go through th- different kinds and different degrees of of alterations, seldom radical in any sense. Mm. So I have, um, as it were, converging but separate attitudes to my plays. In the f- I write them as though every syllable is in place, and I also come to them with a kind of liberality once we're in a rehearsal. Um, I keep getting as far as a semicolon, thinking it ought to be a full stop, but I'll just persist with one more thought. Um, (laughs) When you're writing, oh, can I just betray a confidence? He's written a play, I don't know why he's, asking me uh, as though he knows nothing well, about this. I can assure you that it's,
0: and this is not peeing in your proverbial pocket because it's a linen suit and I wouldn't want to do that, but um, <laughs> I think we're talking very different levels, so I think <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll leave that there, but Look, very, very polite of you to
1: mention it. <laughs> well, I, I, what I was going to add, you can you can tell us in a minute whether it applies to you or not. But well, it's funny you should mention that because... <laughs>
0: I, yeah, you do. I, I've endlessly correcting lines. Yeah. Mm.
1: Well, while you're writing, as far as I'm concerned, the thing that you're working on is as self-sufficient as, let's say, a sonnet. It's just you it and it, and there's no other factors. Um, it's it's the thing. It's it's the words themselves, and it's you and It's a closed loop. And then the moment you give it to somebody and you have a rehearsal thing going on, uh, the purity of that situation dissolves and you sit in rehearsal absolutely obsessed with details which are purely technical. And when I say technical, I actually mean should that volume knob be on six or seven at that instant? And should that light cue not be slightly yellower and just a tiny bit earlier? I mean, you become completely, as, as though this sonnet is now mm. going to be completely destroyed unless, unless all these other purely technical things are exactly right. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's something a, a self-enclosed writer should wake up to occasionally. That well, do you in find the theatre, that's yeah. what ha- that's what it's for.
0: And also the shock of when you give a, a, a script to actors for the first time and they read and you think this is absolutely dreadful. Um, and in the first week of rehearsals, when you when they're struggling, you know, and, and yeah. everyone knows that it for the first, there's some point in the rehearsal process where it suddenly clicks. Uh, and and it it, it begins to live again. But is it difficult for you to retain the faith in the sonnet, retain the faith in the closed loop, when you're working with a bunch of actors and a director who are struggling towards what you have struggled with for the year
1: before? Uh, I have a different experience. Um, The early part of rehearsals, the thing actually is quite self-reinforcing, and so on, and, you know, feels okay, it's when you get onto the stage for the first time and everything gets kind of messy, at that point you realize that that you're writing for an audience which we don't have at the moment, you realize that the sonnet is now at the mercy of rhythms which are under other people's control, not your own, and you know, what we do have in common is that we like comedy. Mm. And I'm very proud of of writing comedy. I think in one way or another, I don't think I've ever written anything which wasn't supposed to get a laugh somewhere and sometimes was supposed to do that more than anything else. Mm. And with comedy, I think we're we're the daring young men on the flying trapeze Mm. and women also, because Um, you know, if if you write a really tragic piece you can fill in the details yourself, and it's met by a very long and thoughtful silence, that could be quite good news. It's not necessarily (laughs) terrible news, whereas if you Mm. gallop onto the stage of the Wharf Review, deliver the line and are met by a thoughtful silence, you have, it's like diving into an empty swimming pool. Mm. Mm. Uh, so I, mm. I think we're quite, quite mm. sort of brave in a way. You've obviously
0: played Casula, then, you know, the feeling <laughs> um, Just on that, on that question of comedy, I mean, the interesting thing is, uh, and, and this is why, again, the subject matter you deal with, the, 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 the philosophical subjects, Uh, And the intellectual rigour of the place, and having done one, I can assure you, it's quite difficult to get your head around it all the times, and often the audience think, uh, quite a few people said, look, we didn't fully understand it, but we felt very clever. um, (laughs) Understanding the bits that we did. Now, why do you think is it, and I think this is very true, that comedy is a better vehicle for exploring more complicated subjects, uh, particularly intellectually, than drama is?
1: It's because if, um, I, I mean, th- th- these are rather, you know, we both have to, for the moment, deal in quite glib distinctions. Um, comedy, drama, there's <laughs> dramatic comedy and, and so on. But I think, I think if there's something in what you say, it's because in a polemical piece or a melodramatic piece, a piece where, essentially, it's about engaging high emotions, Um, the thing can actually rely on itself, it has to rely on itself, to go all the way there, all the way back there, to reach every single head. Um, And that seems to be, probably, a satisfactory equation. You know, the audience listens, we do what we do, and we get there. But with comedy it's not like that at all. with comedy, you just have to make the perfect pitch in the golf sense if it's just got to land there if it lands too close to me, the audience can't find it they can't kind of get to it, if, it land, if, if if it goes too far, the audience is denied the essential pleasure of reaching forward and grasping something, making an effort of its own to complete this moment between the play and the audience. I, I really believe that that this way of looking at what comedy does is is true from top to bottom, by which I mean that, you know, the actor and I are doing something collaborative every moment. And the line, the line one writes is sending a kind of message or providing a color or a tone. And the utterance does all the work very often. In other words, just the words, those words in that order do the complete job. Now that line, let's say, it's a line of astonishment and contempt all in one, okay? If the actor then starts acting astonishment and contempt, the thing just sinks. Mm. Um, It just, it's too heavy or rich for its own good. So this collaboration, which is not only unspoken, but in a sense unthought of between the writer and the actor is a constant changeable equation. And when I say changeable, I'm going to shut up a minute because this is getting a bit too kind of arcane, but I want to make one point about it, which is that, yes, I do believe that a joke has got to land exactly there so that the audience has to do some of the work to comprehend it. Too far and they don't cut, that's like cutting your food up on your plate. Who wants that? Too close to me and you don't understand what I'm saying. So it's perfect. And the thing I want to add to that is that that perfect place is different for each member of the audience. This is why the mystery is unfathomable.
0: <laughs> mm, mm. So you would follow the advice of, of, of Hamlet speaking to the, the players, speak the speech as I pronounced it to you, trippingly.
1: Ah, uh, well, um, that, that, that's really quite hurtful, because the, <laughs> the most embarrassing and otiose and generally gratuitous thing a writer can do is having failed to explain in abstract terms what a line should sound like, <laughs> then purports to speak it himself. And when I was really young, uh, I thought that was pretty much what should happen. You know, that you write a play, while you're writing, the play is making a certain kind of noise, all the time, it's making this noise. And when I began, I thought that rehearsal was the process of the actors making this noise, learning how to make this noise just by copying you. Mm. Um, the snag about that arrangement is that unless an actor arrives at that sound from inside himself, and that could take weeks, unless he, he, he can get there, but unless he comes from inside himself and you think, yeah, that's it, thanks, at last, unless you get that, um, unfortunately, uh, the, p- the play will fall apart the next time it's performed. In other words, when things are rehearsed right, the way they should be rehearsed from the actor's needs, mm. the last performance of the play will probably be the best one. If you do it my way, as I used to think, you know, 40 years ago, if you just keep trying to think that the actors should just do that. What's the problem? Then you might just sort of get this thing together, and the best performance will be the first night. And after that, it'll just disintegrate. Mm, mm.
0: Well, I've always thought the art of directing is really getting the act- actors to do what you want them to do, but to think that they thought of it first. That is the art of
1: directing. Yeah. It's also... The art of acting is to let the director think that he thought of it first, yes. too.
0: <laughs>
1: Very true. Um,
0: I mean, I remember we. I did a conversation with Edward Albee. He's, he's certainly not as generous. He he thinks the actors bring nothing to it, that the writing is all. And I think it was Paul Schofield or something was doing one of his plays. And he said, no, I'll show you. I'll show you what an actor can do. And he delivered one of the speeches of Albee's and Albee, and said, uh, well, what do you think of that? And he said, you know what, for the first time, I really sat there and thought, gosh, that's a well-written speech. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> um, now... Having known travesties, uh, although I did have to refresh my memory, I have brought my um, script with me, I thought this would be a useful vehicle. How many people here are familiar with travesties or saw the, I think, triumph is the word you're looking for um, <laughs> when it was performed here? Quite a few. Um, we'll, we'll take you through it, but it's an interesting insight into a particular uh, creative process that I think you could truly call stopadian. Um I saw in an interview you did, I think, for the Sydney Morning Herald, that you begin a play with an idea, and I think, if I'm right, that this idea began with the discovery of the character of Henry Carr, um, an obscure British diplomat in Zurich after the First World War, who was in a production of The Importance of Being Earnest, which was directed by James Joyce. Now, not many of us in this room would read that and think, hello, there's a play in that.
1: Well, I would have thought most people would. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, uh, especially if you add that Lenin was living in this town at the same time. Mm. Um, mm, well, Even then? Mm. Yes. <laughs> Jonathan um, played this old boy who was, was a real person, but I'd forgotten that he was a real person. Um, And when the play opened and and got written about, I had a letter from his wife. It was really alarming, because I thought I'd invented him by then. (laughs) And uh, she was very sweet about it, actually. And she came down to London. She lived in the Midlands, because Henry Carr was dead. But it never struck me that he might have a widow. And she gave Henry Carr's Cigarette case to John Wood, who played Henry Carr in the first production. Mm. But
0: how do you how do you go from there, reading that and thinking, ah, right? And then coming up, w- what is the process to take that idea, and then how do you sketch it out, and then how do you then think, oh well, I'll I'll make the structure of it, the uh, reminiscent of the structure and importance of being earnest. How do you how do you approach that just from a creative yeah. point of view if that's not too hard a question
1: <clears throat> the the book that Jonathan's talking about was a biography of James Joyce by Richard Ellman and it mentioned this event in Zurich in 1917 I think it was whenever it was 15 and um, and there was indeed this production of the importance of being earnest I'd, I'd done Rosencrantz and Guildenstern which as it were relied on a certain familiarity with Hamlet by William Shakespeare. You know, how many plays in the, in the English-language theatre can you say that of? Because after Rosencrantz, people kept coming up and saying, oh, you should write a play about the messenger in Antony and Cleopatra or something. <laughs> and, um, and even then, even at that time, it occurred to me vaguely that the importance of being earnest was possibly another example of a play which had entered the common culture and even the subconscious. Um, I'm not answering your question very well because I don't actually remember precisely what happens, Um, but uh, can I answer it in a slightly oblique way? Uh, At that time, um, I thought that I had to know a lot about a play before I could begin writing it. Mm. So probably I started working out what I could do and then just got into it. I don't do that anymore. I try not to. I think it's something I've learned that if you can get going with the minimum amount of information possible, you're better off. And there's, uh, that nice lady, who introduced us. Um, She won't mind my telling you, though she probably would mind my telling you, (laughs) she played Bird Boot in The Real Inspector Hound when she was at school, who's a a critic. And I just said to her before we got together, I said, that, that actually, you know, this is a play which begins with a body on the stage. And I remember not knowing who the body was, or who'd killed him, or why, for quite a long time. So in a way, I'm contradicting myself. I must have realised something very early on, because it was like 1968. I was writing that. Um, but a much an example which kind of almost shocks me, because it just seems so such a dangerous way for for, for me to behave about the mm. process is. Um, Arcadia, which is a better known play and possibly known to enough people to make the point here. Uh, there's, a, there's a thing in, act, in the second scene of Arcadia where uh, have you, uh, you know we, we've seen a scene happening in the early 19th century and then it's the 20th century and we've seen various letters exchange hands and then in the second scene this 20th century person turns up at this very same house the very same room And I have a completely clear memory of stopping, literally putting down my pen and thinking, now then, are these letters in the house or are they in his briefcase? I hadn't decided at that point. And the idea that I might have made the other choice, which would have been wrong and led me God knows where, possibly to abandon the play, I don't know, um, I find that startling even now. Sorry, I really hate the sound of my own voice. It is just so self-referential. <laughs> Why didn't you ask me about somebody else's plays? I'm good on that. Well. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, um, so the answer is that, that um, even Travis's, which was, which was 35 years ago or something, 40, 40 years ago, Um, there was still this, this thing was always an issue, can you begin before you know what it is? And is that good or bad?
0: Well, I I mean, I guess in the case of travesties, it it is put together like a Swiss watch, so you have to have some idea of the parts um, that are going to go into it. And it is it is a, a, a play that is is more than the sum of its parts. But I mean, we, we often would have people leave uh, sometimes at interval, and you'd say, "Oh, is it that bad? Didn't think I it, thought we it were going quite well," uh, and they say, "We thought it had ended," um, <laughs> and it does end. Uh, there's a great end to Act One where Henry Carr, because uh, James Joyce, uh, they've had uh, a bit of a falling out, um, and it, it brings up one of the other. Um, Major themes of the play, and that's about artists and what is an artist. Yeah. And Henry Carr is, you know, oblivious to the role of the artist. Yeah. But um, he he had this long going feud with Joyce, and it ended up in the courts over who was going to pay for the trousers um, that he had loaned to the production of *The Importance of Being Earnest*. Um, so good to know they were doing co-ops even in 1917. Um, But he says, I dreamed about him. I dreamed I had him in the witness box. A masterly cross-examination. Case practically won. Admitted it all, the whole thing, the trousers, everything. And I flung at him. The italics are yours. What did you do in the Great War? I wrote Ulysses, he said. What did you do? (laughs) Bloody nerve, blackout. Now, you would think the play was over, really, wouldn't you? Um, But that, that, that does, I mean, that is a great, it's a killer line. Uh, and, and the whole notion of the artist. And then you also introduced um, Tristan Zara, who was one of the dataists, uh, who was in Zurich at the time as well. Um, surely, if you're going to be sort of, I guess, tackling that, those ideas on that scale, you, 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 it would be best to have some idea of where you were going to go with it. Or did, did that sort of argument evolve in its kind of dialectic way? Because I mean, the other thing that struck me about this is that you you argue the case for both sides of an argument with equal... Conviction. And I mean, do you, do you ultimately want the audience to be the arbiter of, of these things?
1: Well, well you know, I, I really didn't, I felt it would be rude to interrupt you, uh, but I think that there's essentially unbelievable though it may be, uh, you, were, you were just um, just empirically wrong about about knowing that that line would be, you know... These, here's what I want to say. It's really important. I just think it's absolutely central. Um, I don't know why I didn't want to interrupt. When I look at our billing, I can't imagine why I was worried about interrupting. <laughs> um, Cheap, cheap laughs, don't they? That's what you get the um, big bucks for. The actual thing, the, the, the actual thing which I really uh, wish to say, with mm. as much conviction as it's possible for me to muster after that, is this, that when things work out right, um, it's, it's good news for what you've written if you feel lucky, not if you feel clever. If you Mm. feel clever, it's not good news for what you've written. If you feel lucky, it's very good news for what you've written. What what do you mean? I mean that you have to just cross your fingers and just get into it and just see where it takes things, Mm. where it takes you. And, um, And then, in some way, which I don't begin to wish to analyze, the play is doing some of the work for you. Mm. Uh, you can make all kinds of plans if you like. Oh, yeah, I'm gonna, yeah, okay, I'm gonna make it that you murdered the whatever, or... But, but if you don't get ahead of it and treat it like some kind of organism mm. with its own, um, you know, System of blood vessels and so forth. Um, it'll actually take you places, and then something which you might have been slightly worried about, like you know, who actually did kill that person? Who is that corpse under the sofa? Uh, suddenly, the play ter- provides the answer, and and when you think, oh my goodness, what? God, what a stroke of luck. That was just incredibly lucky. That's when you feel things are okay with what you're working on. But when you're working
0: on, as as an actor, you think it it is so dense and it is so beautifully formed and it's so um, articulate and so complex. The word luck doesn't enter the uh, equation coming no. at it as an outsider, so it's interesting it's, it's to hear a, you say it's, that.
1: It's a word that you'd use if you were observing the situation. Of course it's not actually luck. It's it's your subconscious uh, working for you all the time. I, I think you have to rely on being the beneficiary, the blind beneficiary, the deaf beneficiary of your subconscious. That thing you just read out, uh, yeah, you know, I was coming up to a first- that curtain. I needed something nice for it. It fell off the end of my pen at that moment. And the same is true of the last line in the, in the play, as a matter of fact. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known how to finish the play, mm-hmm. um, or what the last words ought to be. Um, no, there's something uh, however inconsistently I've lived by this. I know it's something I learned and should always trust, which is that if it's any good at all, um, you, have to, you have to, yes, lead it some of the time, but follow it some of the time also.
0: Moving to uh, the trilogy, The Coast of Utopia, which is a, a, a very vast work, Uh, and deals with subject matter that may not be familiar to to many people, mid-nineteenth century Russian and German revolutionary philosophers. Um, Some of you may be familiar with them. Um, But it's a work that moves across a a very wide panorama. Do you follow the same process with that? Did that begin and just take shape as it went along or how much research is required to enter the world of those people? I
1: didn't know I was writing a trilogy. I thought I was writing a play. Um, The person I wanted to write about turns out not to be the central character and doing the necessary reading for Coast of Utopia um, led me ultimately to uh, to the the realization that that there was no way I could make it one play. Um, No, the thing about Curse of Utopia, which slightly alters the situation, is that it's a history play, and therefore it has a, it has a contour which um, history provides. It's about these people between this year and that year, and this is what happened to them. So you've got this cat's cradle sense of the architecture you're working within. With a play like Arcadia, it's, where everything is invented, um, it feels like a much more dangerous occupation. Mm. Um, the, I, I found there's a character, I don't know what, how long we've got, what we should talk about, but Arcadia began with the character of a man called Belinsky, who was a literary critic at a time when such was the suppression of the... Of the Tsarist society, we're talking about the 1830s and 1840s, Uh, that um, his work (coughs) would would appear in what were called the thick journals, in a form where he was just about able to make a critique of the society he was living in, though (coughs) he was a figure of suspicion on that account. But uh, he had tuberculosis, and... um, He was allowed to go to a German health spa and he made his way to Paris where a lot of Russian emigres were living. And they begged him not to go home because he was on the list of people to be arrested and so on. And something, the way he responded to that was what made me want to write about all these people in the first, at all. That was was absolutely what the play began from because what he said was that he... He hated Paris, where you could publish anything you like. And there was this cacophony in the marketplace. Every sensational essay was replaced the following day by two different, two others. He said, you have to be a Russian living in a police state to understand why it matters to be a writer. What I write, he said, is passed from hand to hand by candlelight at midnight. Uh, the students show up at the coffeehouse a week before the magazine is due to come out saying, is it out yet? And then they read me and... that's success. And this was a really f- appalling thing to take on board, actually, because what it's saying is that um, that artistic suppression uh, has viewed that in an Olympian way. It has a beneficial side. A lot of the great literature in the canon uh, has been produced um, in places and at times where writers were not free to write what they wished. Uh, I'm not recommending that as a way to go for mm. any society, but it's a thought one has to deal with. So that was the beginning of Coastal Utopia.
0: But does that lessen the role of the writer, in your opinion, in a, in a free society?
1: It doesn't lessen it. Um, it's just that if one is being slightly vain about what the role of the writer is at all, uh, one can't help looking with a, s- a certain interest at a situation where, because there is no freedom of speech, anything which a writer manages to get published is scrutinized in a way that in a free society uh, w- wouldn't happen with any particular mm. work of art. Um, there's no need to, to scrutinize it, to... to force yourself to understand what's, what it's really saying. There's too much of it flying around and it doesn't matter that much anyway, and so on. Um, I, loved, uh, I loved this Belinsky. He, he died young, of, of he, he, he did go back home and before they arrested him, he was dead of tuberculosis. But uh, he had... A, he says something about what it is to be an artist And he was not one, he was a critic, but he'd say, you know, I'm not an artist, I can't write a poem. The play I wrote was a a lousy play. Uh, The thing about being a poet, you know, when I try to write a play or a poem, he said, uh, there's an intense effort to sort of be there writing it, whereas the real poet goes absent. Mm. You can watch him, the pen in his hand, and you can watch him writing. And then the pen stops. And then it resumes. And Valensky says, where did he go in that moment? And that's a question which anybody who composes music, paints, writes plays, writes anything, that's a question which we recognize, you know, where did I go in that moment?
0: Mm. He goes on to answer that very question with the line, I think it's him, every work of art is the breath of a single eternal idea breathed by God into the inner
1: life of the artist. That's where he went. Yeah, that's, that's right. Um... I'm happy to tell you that I can no longer remember whether I wrote that or he did. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you that question because, I, think, I, hope I mean, scary. I was looking at
0: some of um, Herzen's lines and thinking, what, 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 what is the original and what's not? Um, uh, the coming revolution is the only religion I pass on to you and it's a religion without a paradise on the other shore. Is that one of yours or is that one of Hertz's? Hertz. Hertz's. yeah. I mean, this is the interesting thing, though, because you, you talk about the plays coming from the self, con- from the subconscious, or, or uh, and just forming before you. What feeds your your, your subconscious? What, what 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 puts the material into that well from which things are plucked as as they come out?
1: Is it um uh, talking and reading? I mean, um, it, it's a bit of a mess, actually. I have a an addiction to newsprint. I'm a complete junkie for newsprint. Um, It's partly coming out of journalism myself, but it's also not just, well, newsprint and print. You know, we talked about Travis's coming out of a sentence in a 700-page book about James Joyce, which I was reading for my own pleasure. Um, I have this sense that the play which I need, the play which I lack, uh, will come from Tomorrow's Guardian. uh, And therefore, um, I simply cannot not get hold of tomorrow. Of course, part of me is saying, wake up, it's actually in the South China Morning Post and you'll never know about it. Um, It's absurd. But uh, whenever I have written a play, I've got absolutely nothing. Um, I'm really grumpy uh, at the moment about myself. Uh, I'm very sort of upset about it, really, because although I I do like working, and I work actually all the time, um, I sometimes work very hard without being at all productive. And recently I've been doing other kinds of work, and I've had other kinds of preoccupations, public and so on. Um, and I haven't actually written a play since this rock and roll that you talked about. Um, and I really have to. I don't know why I have to, but I, know, but I, I just feel I have to. I think you, I read
0: somewhere again in that, in that interview maybe that you were considering writing a play about journalism.
1: Yeah, I did say that because I wrote a play about journalism decades ago and journalism has changed a lot. Um, I think it's an enormously important subject. And I just got behind the curve on this, because I spent about five years taking clippings out of newspapers and magazines about the general subject of journalism. And when the kind of hacking scandal broke, um, almost my first thought was, well, that's blown it, because I just look as I'm leaping onto a bandwagon now. So I went off the idea, I might come back to it, but there's something I want to write about, and it's not journalism, and I shall kind of go away next week and make the effort.
0: I mean, as a a journalist, a former journalist, what what did you think of the evidence of the News of the World reporter who said that uh, there is no such thing as privacy anymore. Privacy is for pedophiles. It's the space where people do bad things, and he had absolutely no remorse about the direction the newspaper had taken. Yeah. Uh, and he seemed to be speaking for quite a substantial part of modern journalism who seemed to think that that sort of thing is okay. I mean, do you think the, the sort of corrosion of the civil discourse has now become so entrenched that it's irreversible?
1: Well, the, the, the particular witness you just uh, invoked is, is, is a slightly comic character, to be honest. Mm. Um, he said a lot of things which bring a wry smile to the lips. He doesn't speak for anybody. Uh, He speaks for um, a position, if you like, but I think uh, there's even a little kind of self-awareness in Hmm. that particular journalist. Uh, You know, he knows the effect he's making. Um, Nick Davis, who essentially, if anybody did crack the story, and led on the story, is a Guardian reporter, Um, In his evidence, he said he didn't think that the press was capable of self-regulation. And I must say that so far the evidence seems to be on his side. Uh, When I was uh, reading about ancient newspaper stuff, when I I was 20, I was reading about journalism then. And I remember um, in some book, (laughs) sort of a reporter knocking on a door, ch- chasing some scandal or murder, uh, said, I'm, I'm from the news of the world. And the person who answered the door said, how do I know you're from the news of the world? To which he replied, well, I've just admitted it. <laughs> 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 anyway, um, it's, it's a wide and deep subject, the subject of journalism at the mm. moment. Um, and I've always been enthralled by the subject of journalism and for the first part of my grown-up youth, my friends were journalists and my ambition was to get to Fleet Street, not to get to the Bristol Old Vic. I mean, and and I've always felt in a kind of awe of journalism because you know when we were all involved in Eastern European affairs under communism and so on uh, the truism always was that uh, that without free expression uh, there wasn't any kind of freedom That, that all the other freedoms were dependent on free expression free journalism and I think that's that, that is so, but um, you know if I were asked and I am asked you know what am, I ac- what am I actually in favor of? am I in favor of legislation, statutory legislation to define the limits of this freedom? or am I in favor of um, idiocies and injustices, and in intrusions into privacy, as being the price one should be willing to pay for an absolute freedom. But the latter phrase uh, is a fake. We, there is no such thing as absolute freedom. In fact, there's less freedom in many ways than there was when I was a journalist young. Um, the whole raft of legislation um, which is to do with, you know, gender politics, race politics, and so on. Uh, Maybe maybe to our communal and psychological benefit, uh, or not, uh, there's much less freedom of what you can write and speak than they used to be.
0: Mm. I mean it's interesting reading Coast of Utopia in the in the third play, which is, is set in London and the emigres are all there saying and reveling in the political freedom that they're allowed to have. The fact that they can uh, write whatever they want. Uh and it struck me then, I mean is Britain becoming less Oh yeah, li- yeah far more well, less course libertarian, it's Absolutely
1: yeah. becoming less free. Hertz this wonderful thing which is in, which I did put in there, he said you know because britain became a kind of haven for every kind of refugee from various revolutions on the continent and herzen says the british the english actually i think he said they don't give us asylum out of respect for us they do it out of respect for themselves they invented personal liberty and they know it and this is what is being lost, mm. you know, it's, the, it's, it's the greatest invention anybody ever invented, the idea of autonomous liberty of the individual. It's, a, it's an incredibly recent idea. Um, it's really the Romantic Revolution. We're, we're, you know, we're, we're talking about, Jesus, what are we talking about? Maybe from the Renaissance. Um, we're talking about 500 years, maybe where this notion that um, I have an identity independent of the society I belong to, that notion uh, came into being. There was nothing discreditable for most of the history of civilization. There was nothing thought discreditable uh, about society which we would now loosely brand as being a fascist society. Plato's Republic is an interesting example. I mean, Plato wouldn't have the artist in his Republic, as you possibly remember. Um, by the way, um, we, we, are we gonna... Uh, Audience we questions, we will. We have to we do will. that, because he's, st- he's got to go and do no. a
0: show. Well, but, you know, that's boring. Um. Well, well, we do we do have time for audience questions. There are microphones at these positions here. You may be able to see them through the gloom, three, four, two, and one. If anyone does have a question they'd like to ask, Mr Stoppard, I'd ask you to move towards the microphones in an orderly fashion. <coughs> uh, and while we're doing that, I'll, I will ask you a question, sir, about um, the nature of the artist as we just rose there. So if you do have a question you'd like to ask, move to the microphones, uh, and we'll get to you shortly. But... Um, you spoke about the the role of the artist in society and there's a great bit in um, Travesties about what is an artist Uh, and this is Henry Carr's view and then Zara gives the the return view Um, and I think it's um, the the differentiation between labour and art and Carr when he was at school he would have to do labour but if you got a chit from matron you didn't have to do labour and the artist has a chit for life where did you get it? What is an artist? For every thousand people, there's 900 doing the work, 90 doing well, 9 doing good, and one lucky bastard who's the artist.
1: Yeah. That gives you some idea
0: of the background I came from. I mean, do do you just see? I mean, and he goes on to say that, you know, there there was never the distinction between labour and art. Uh, And and is that something that. well, obviously developed at some point in history, are we in danger of losing that? Is the artist in danger of losing its no. significance, or is it gaining uh, more? I don't.
1: No, no, I think the artist um, has grounds for more and more complacency because we now uh, embrace and accept uh, whole communities of people as artists who possibly would have had greater difficulty in persuading us um, in previous generations. I'm fascinated by this, it's too late in the afternoon to get into it thoroughly, but I would like to just suggest what the crack in the door is if one ever had time to get into this. Um, in um, in gallery art, in you know, to, just using the word as somebody who paints or sculpts and so on, uh, and I don't, I'm not, I, this is not, some old fogey kernel no. trying to get, it, get my rocks off on this at all. It's just, it just seems to be an interesting fact, empirically interesting, that a huge shift has occurred at some point, and I think it, I know when it did occur, uh, in the conversation between the artist and the observer, the audience. Because for most of the history of art, the artist was saying to the observer, you can't do this, I can. And the observer's saying, yeah, you're right. I can't do that. And that's now actually shifted into a completely different conversation where the observer is saying, yeah, but, but hang on, couldn't I do that? <laughs> and the artist is saying, yeah, you can, but you didn't, and I did. Mm. Um, there's a whole. There's a completely different conception of what the artistic act consists in. It, it's, it's become an, an act of thought mm. rather than an act of skill, if you like. Mm. Um, sorry, I'm using up your time now. Uh, well, look, oh, we've got a, a nice little assembly. Shall we start
0: at uh, number four? If the first person at the microphone at number four could ask a question, please. Uh, hopefully, I'll keep this really s- simple question. Um, I'm just interested in, in which contemporary writers you find most interesting.
1: Um... <coughs> you mean which plays I like by people? yeah if that's simplest um, I, I mean i think this is probably true of me too I, I think i think the people who've written the plays i like most and best have also written plays i don't much like at all and vice versa so it's not quite like you'd name a writer and that's my man or that's my woman you know that's i go there um but my answer wouldn't uh, be terribly surprising, I, mean, I, I, I probably, I'm, I really revere the work of Harold Pinter, so you know, no, no, no big shock there, um, and um, I think I'll stop there because I don't want to mention friends and I don't want to omit to mention them. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Microphone number three, please. That's the one. Uh, some years ago, when you were in Sydney, you were speaking to us and talked about synthesising uh, Hamlet. And you were, it was after you'd published Dogs, Hamlet and Coats, Kurtzb- Macbeth. And you were working on a three-page version of Hamlet. I'm interested to know, did you get there? And secondly, I wanted to ask the question at the time, and it stayed with me ever since, if you were to reduce Hamlet to one word, what would
1: it be? Um, first of all, I did do it. I did it as, I did it as a 15-minute version of Hamlet, but it had a 90-second encore which repeated <laughs> the whole thing very fast. Um, and the word, um, the, the word, I suppose, uh, might be if,
0: Microphone number two up in the circle there. Good afternoon, Mr Stopper. Thank you so much for returning to Sydney and uh, honouring us with your presence once again. Uh, my question relates to the influence and impact of your being a non-native English speaker on your writing and your dazzling command of English language. Another great writer, Joseph Conrad, springs to mind. Why do you think writers like Conrad and yourself have such an amazing relationship with the English language that non-native English writers don't particularly possess, necessarily?
1: Well, you know, that's very... I I take all the compliments you offer me, but I'm afraid everything you said is wrong, actually. (laughs) English is my first language, and I stopped speaking Czech when I was probably five or six. Um, And I have an elder brother uh, who had exactly the same history and education as I had, and language writing is you know, he's, he's certainly not inarticulate, but whatever's going on with me in language is not to do with uh, being born in Czechoslovakia. That's a misapprehension about me. And you're not the first, by any means, mm. to have linked my name with Conrad, though you somehow omitted to mention Nabokov. Um, I usually oh, well,
0: get my vocals. Welcome to the Being Wrong Club. Um, <laughs> number
1: one. Uh, Mr. Stobart, you mentioned, uh, we all know you're much concerned with Russian literature, and I know you also have um, your opinion on politics and social life in Russia and Belarusia. You have recently signed a petition to... Belarusian president, to have mercy on the prisoners, and we can only thank you and appreciate your support for these people. Have you heard about the recent meetings of opposition in, in, in Russia? There is something going on to f- for fair vote. Word. Uh, your words wait much. Your place, uh, have a great success in Russia. So, if you have no, to say I, some course. words I, uh, to I, these people. I, I, Actually, I probably know less than you. I, re- I know what I read in the newspapers. I've got good friends in Russia, but mostly in the world of the theater. Um, and I, I'm not in a position to speak with any kind of real authority about that. Um, thank you for your, you know, your sympathetic remarks, but I think it's, it's, I, I should now actually tell you what Neil Gaiman said at a similar occasion when he was on a platform and it came to question time, uh, before before the questions began, he said, I just want to tell you all that a question is a a short sentence with a question mark on the end of it. (laughs) Um, Uh, So I only say that because it's, yeah, because he's going to he's don't going to don't do don't a match today, and we've don't only got four minutes.
0: Uh, microphone number four, you're tensed up, and have you got your question sure. mark ready? So, so stop. so I'm over here, this hello. side over here. Hello, here, Dan. here, here. Oh,
1: hello. Okay,
0: I wanted to ask. Um, you've you've written a lot of based, Most of your writing is based on historical facts, where you use a lot of that. Lots of your reading from historical facts in your writing, but you, you you've also written a lot about the desirability of um, an ideal society. So I was wondering if in your future play, you might look at a future-looking a future-looking play looking at the same topic of
1: an ideal society. Yeah, um, at the moment, I'm more interested in where the ideals come from, actually. Um, you know, it's nice of you to talk about a future play. I'm, I'm feeling less productive and tired. I really want to write a play, but... Um, I don't think I'm going to have, in the end, time to write all the things I'd like to do. Uh, but, yeah, and the ideal society, and what constitutes an ideal society, um, in a way, I think, I've, I've written about as much as I can. But thanks.
0: <laughs> Number
1: three. Um, first off, Uh, This is going
0: to sound very twee, but thank you for Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Some of my best high school memories are going through that play with my class. Um, This is apparently the Shakespeare microphone. Um, And I wanted to ask you, having started at Shakespeare and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, what led you back to Shakespeare for Shakespeare in Love?
1: Oh, the the answer to that is is, um, pretty kind of banal. I mean, I had a... I had a relationship with a film studio where I was looking at stuff they had in development and I was supposed to choose a couple of things to work on over a three year period. And I didn't want to do the Shakespeare in Love one, to be honest, because, you know, they think, oh, yeah, you wrote this thing about Rosencrantz, so this is an obvious one for you. (laughs) Um, And it's it's the most common mistake that people make about writers because they only know what writers have already done. They have no idea what they might wish to do. Um, So I, I didn't have any part in... In the end, I had an obligation, and I have to say that once I got into it, of my unwillingness, I really enjoyed doing it because there was an existing script by Mark Norman which had the foundational thought of young William Shakespeare in love and, you know, good for Mark. Uh, but I didn't want to do it, and when I did want to do it, I changed everything. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Who have we got?
0: Have we got someone else up there on number one? Is there anyone there on number two? Yes, being democratic, number two.
1: I'll try to make this as short as possible for you.
0: Um, But basically, I was wondering what your intentions for doing the film of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Um, What did you think you could get out of a film that you can't get out of your plays?
1: Just directing... Again, um, the answers tend to be disappointing in this area. Um, It wasn't by any means an expensive film, but it was easier to raise the money to make it if I directed it. You might wonder why this should be. I will tell you, it's because I had never directed a film, and therefore it was conceivable that I was actually Orson Welles. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, But... After you've directed the film, that conceit is no longer tenable. (laughs) uh, Which is why it's easier to raise the money if you've never directed one. Um, These nice friends of mine, they kept sort of nagging me to to be a film of it, and in the end, I went along with it. I made a list of directors. I don't don't understand film and directors at all. I made a list. um, It was a list of 20 people. Uh, Half of them were vague friends of mine, and I looked at this list, and for the life of me, I could not see why any of them should or shouldn't do it. I didn't understand what I was supposed to be matching. Um, And finally, it turned out, in a way, I was the only person who could do it, because I was the only potential director out there. Who wasn't concerned to defend the play from the film director? <laughs> I, I didn't, I had no problem with adding stuff, leaving stuff out, and so on. I watched it a few months ago. I would give so much to be allowed to make my own director's cut of that film. It would be about 20 minutes shorter than the producer's cut. Just unique in the annals mm, of filmmaking. Something <laughs>
0: <clears throat> Number four.
1: Um, you mentioned the German production of uh, Rock and Roll, um, from either something you've seen or heard of. What has been the most, dare I say, radical Stoppard production that you have uh, that you know of? Oh, um, well, I, I, I don't know of many because. Um, I don't actually make a practice of moving around to to look at new productions of old plays at all. Um, And I don't recall offhand anything which could compete with... I mean, Harold had an experience, Harold Pinter had an experience, where one of his plays uh, was being performed in a boxing ring, which wasn't what he had in mind. Um, (laughs) and, And he kind of stopped that happening. Uh, I'll tell you what, a really nice thing that happened to me. Uh, I, w- I was invited to a festival in, in Sicily where they were doing a play of mine about A.E. Hausman, the scholar-poet, and uh, it was great. I was, you know, happily, more or less happily, watching this Sicilian production, and slightly to my, you know, to, to my relief, slightly to my... Folks, I felt mildly, mildly grateful in the second half when I realized that they left about 40 minutes out of the second <laughs> half. Um, and then it, it got to the end. And there was really a really charming young man who directed it. And we were all walking down the hillside. And it was summer, it was Sicily. I mean, come on. Uh, but finally, I said, Oh, you know, um, I couldn't help noticing. <laughs> <laughs> And he said, "Um, yeah, yeah, um, we decided we'd just perform the part we had time to rehearse. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's it's a principle which I'm trying to get introduced into (laughs) the the London theatre.
0: (laughs) Mic number three. Two. Three. Yes, uh, thank you, Mr Stoppard, for coming. Like many others, we really welcome you here. Can I just ask, many artists uh, have their work divided into periods. Do you discern periods in your own work? And if I could ask you, if you do see different periods, um, is there something or some things that cause transitions between those periods?
1: Oh, just growing up, probably. uh, I think probably there I could make one or two demarcations, but uh, you may not agree with them. So I think the more interesting answer, I confess, is that I have absolutely no interest in looking at my work in that kind of objective way. Um, I don't have time to do it, I don't really care about it. I have no academic interest in my own work. It's an oddity. To me, Um, theatre is not a text, it's an event.
0: And I think we've got time for two more, so shall we go to number one? Um, You spoke of how increased scrutiny and constraints on what can be published sometimes results in great works of literature. Uh, Do you think that in this internet age when anyone can publish anything they feel like,
1: uh, we'll see more great works of literature that might not have otherwise come out or less precisely because of that? I would say less. Mm. I think I would say less. Um, I'm not saying there wouldn't be great works produced, but um, proportionally as Kingsley Amis um, once remarked, more is worse.
0: <laughs>
1: mm. Number
0: four. Um well as a very, very young and very, very aspiring playwright, I won't go to say that I am one quite yet I was wanting to ask about your process, and I was wondering how much you think about your audience when you're writing. Do you do things to make them laugh here, or to make them squirm here, or or do you just leave it to when you get the actors on a stage in front of them and see what happens? Uh,
1: I don't separate that from all the other things in the process, Uh, so I'm neither bothered about the audience nor negligent of them I don't think you can separate these things. You know, you're writing a play. The the problem with writing plays is usually the next line. Um, You you know that you don't think about any of these things. They're just a given in the situation. theater is an event which takes place in a large room and everybody is entitled to leave before it's over. That is the fundamental situation (laughs) that a play is in. Everybody is allowed to leave whenever they want. So, you know, I suppose you could say, to use the Kant phrase, you're you're kind of factoring in this knowledge while you're working. But on the other hand, um, I don't like my own answer, because I think you ought to be working beyond the capacity of your audience, your ideal audience, even if you're idealising an audience. I think you should be working just slightly beyond that capacity.
0: Mm. And a final question from over there, if there's still someone there. Do you think theatre in its nature is suited um, to perhaps younger writers who have got ideas that they really want to get out there in a way that um, perhaps a novel is more suited to a a writer with maturity?
1: Um, You know, whatever I think, it seems that young writers do think so, yes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm completely bemused by that laugh because I wasn't I wasn't trying to get any kind of laugh. Don't don't go away, I I really don't want to let this go. when I began, um, there were very, very few fringe theatres. You could count them on one hand and some of them you wouldn't even know if to call them fringe or not. I'm talking about London, I don't know about anywhere else. It's also true of New York, for example. For a young writer now, two things are true. One is that there is an enormous amount of fringe theatre from you know, proper little venues to the back room of a pub, enormous amount. And the other thing which is really true and more critical to your question is that most of them want to do new work. Um, I find it astonishing, personally, when you think of, well, the whole world of, the internet and film and television and everything, stand-up comedy, whatever, there seems to be a constant desire among many writers to write what's called a play and rehearse it and design for it and get a director and hope you get an audience. That seems to be, yet, even to this day, it seems to be the aspiration of of a great many young writers. Uh, I'm very touched by that and of course I welcome it. But I have to say I'm also a bit puzzled by it. Because you were asking whether one could have a lot of, you know, exert some leverage on the world through theatre. And I've always felt that if you want to change something by Tuesday, theatre is no good. (laughs) Journalism is what does that. But if you want to just alter the chemistry of the moral matrix, then theatre has a longer half-life. And I think that's something to cherish.
0: Well, time has escaped us. So I'd just like to finish by saying, in Jumpers, your character George uh, has the line, "Language is a finite instrument crudely applied to an infinity of ideas," and I would like to say that I think you have proved him wrong. Um, and language is, uh, in your, in your usage, uh, an almost infinite instrument that has been beautifully applied to an infinity of ideas. And I would like to thank Sir Tom Stoppard.